If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to be picking up in our sermon series through this book. We've been walking through uh, 1 Corinthians. It's been titled A Roadmap for Raw Christians because of the context of the Corinthian church in the first century. They were raw. They were first first generation believers. They They had grown up in this in this pagan, sexually immoral culture, but yet they've now been called out, and the Apostle Paul is giving them foundational teaching and instructing them on how to live out their faith in Christ. So we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, only half this chapter, page 954. And before we open up God's word, let's go to prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we come together as a church and approach your word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Open up our hearts and minds to see the true meaning of this passage. We want to understand what you were uh, telling the, the original hearers and readers of this letter. And then, Father, we also want to apply it and want to move from then to now and bring this teaching into 2022. So Father, we pray this in faith, and we trust you with the answer. In Jesus' name, amen. John showed up on the the work site for his first day with this new roofing company, and he saw someone up on top of the building, and he, he recognized the person has his boss, and he, he said to the guy next to him, what's, what's the boss doing up on the roof? And he said, oh, he always does that. He's just making a pre-work inspection. He's looking for slip hazards and anything unusual. And John thought, well, all right. I've never seen any of my other bosses do that. And then the boss climbed down the ladder, and he, he came over to the, the workers and, and just kind of looked him over. And another new guy was standing next to John, and he said, you can't wear those shoes. Go home, get, get some work boots on. If you don't have any, go up and buy them. Come back when you get some work boots. John thought, well, that was a little harsh. Couldn't you let him go at least one day? And then the boss said, all right, looks good. Everybody harness up and, let, and let's get going. And, and John kind of chuckled. And then he looked around and he realized no one else was chuckling. He thought it was a joke. And he, again, he turned to the guy next to him and he said, you guys are, are wearing harnesses? They said, yeah, we always do that. He said, well, I've never worked a job like that before. And he said, well, this isn't like any other job you've worked before. And then he heard someone say, talking about some kind of slip guard on, on the edge of the roof, and he said, it's a 4-12 it's a pitch. Nobody's going to fall off of that. And the guy said, well, it's over 25 feet high, and, and that's, that's our standard. And he said, I, I don't get it. I don't know if I can work this way. And, and the person next to him said, look, if you don't like it, take it up with the boss. That's the way we do things around here. We, we, we follow safety rules at, like companies that, that, are, that are not us. They don't do it like this. This is just the way it goes. And if, if you want to work here, um, you're going to have to get used to it. And so John looked around and, and he put his harness on and he got to work. And what John realized in that, that one confrontation on the first day was that this company held to a higher standard 
a higher standard of, of safety that other places where he'd worked hadn't, hadn't held. And so he also went along with the higher standard. God calls his people to a higher standard. God calls his people, even if everyone else around you, God says, look, if, if everyone else around you, if everyone else in the world is giving a green light to, to sin, you're not. Because I'm holding you to a higher standard. And in this next section of, of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to tackle a couple of things. First of all, he's going to talk about lawsuits among believers. We get that. He's going to talk about brother taking brother to court because in his day, if you were wealthy enough, if you were socially connected enough, you could take someone to court and it was the equivalent of legalized theft. You could get away with a lot more than, than was actually due to you because of the, the legal system. So Paul says, don't do that. But once again, the main event of this passage is, is not believers settling disputes among themselves and not going to court. The main event is Paul warning believers, no one will inherit the kingdom of God if they continue to walk in ongoing unrepentant sin. Even if the world says it's okay. Even if the world has, has legalized something and have said uh, there's nothing wrong with this, God says, I'm calling you to a higher standard. You're not to participate in sin, even if you get permission from the world. Let's read these first 11 verses. You're going to hear that language about not taking one another to a court, but you're also going to hear this higher standard language. Now keep in mind, 1 through 11, they go together. 1 through 5 and 6 through 11 are not two separate passages. They go together. And that's one thing I don't want us to miss in our reading this morning. So here it is, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. Or excuse me, 1 through 8 and then 9 through 11 are not two separate passages. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle this, a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and by the Spirit of our God. This passage begins with instruction on going to court. Verse 1 says, When one of you have a grievance, has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saint instead of instead of the saints? Question mark. So Paul's not really asking a question. He he doesn't really wonder if they're doing this because he's addressing it. He's writing to them and he's instructing them about this practice. So the, the question, the opening question, isn't really a legitimate question. It would be more like our saying something like, really? Or, or seriously? Are, are you really doing this? It, it's a challenge question by Paul. He's trying to point out the ridiculousness of it. The Roman court system that would have been in place in Corinth at that time was not Lady Justice wearing a blindfold. It was a corrupt system. It was a broken system. Judges regularly took bribes. Witnesses were intimidated to to change their testimony. And they did so out of fear. Advocates, which is their version of, of lawyers, were not engaging in respectful questioning of witnesses and instead they they came after someone. Their language was inflammatory. Their language was was violent. It was unrestrained. They were encouraged to take the gloves off and go after their opponent personally. So they would attack their character. They would attack their friends. They would even bring their their family members into the the smear process to try to win. Nothing was off limits in the courtroom. Anything to win. And these courtroom disputes took place in large open-air buildings. So the public could gather around like spectators at a sporting event and watch the, the proceedings unfold. It was considered somewhat entertainment. So Paul's asking them, why are you doing this? This is where you would go? This is what you turn to to settle disputes? Verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Are you aware that as believers in Christ, you have a role to play in judging the world? So when we look at Scripture, we we can turn to Jude 14 and 15. It it could be pulling on, on some of these verses. Jude says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Yes, possibly, but the the meaning of holy ones is unclear. That could mean believers could also mean angels, we're not sure. And also executing judgment is not the same as making judicial decisions. In other words, judgment is not the same as judging. So that's somewhat unclear in Jude. Uh, some appeal to Revelation 2, 26-27. This is Jesus' words to the church in Thyatira. The one who conquers and will keep my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations... And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Possibly, but once again, this verse seems to be 
talking more about sharing in Christ's eternal reign rather than judicially making decisions over the world. So this is one of those times where scripture is telling us something. How often does scripture have to say something before it's true? Once. So it's telling us something, but it's not giving us the details on, on how exactly this, this judging is, is going to take place. What, what exactly is going on? But we can trust God um, with the details, even though he hasn't revealed those. So we are going to judge the world. And he says, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So we see what he's doing here. He's arguing from greater to lesser. He's saying, if in fact you're going to be judging the world, can't you handle these? Can, can't you handle these small, trivial uh, disputes like a, a, a breach of contract or, or maybe a, a, you know, a property line dispute or maybe a minor injury case? Can, can't you handle that yourself? Do you not know that you are to judge angels? Once again, we don't have any more information in Scripture on this topic. It seems like it's talking about judging fallen angels Probably no reason to be judging uh, faithful angels that are that are with God in heaven, but we can't go beyond Scripture, so we simply don't know exactly the details on, on this statement. But he's saying, how much more than matters pertaining to, the, to this life? If you're going to be judging the world, if you're going to be judging angels, can't you judge between one another? Some of these smaller things. How ridiculous is it that you bring these things to court? that you would drag brother against brother into court. So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? This is what Paul's saying. Why would you submit yourself to unbelievers and let those outside of Christ make legal decisions that are binding on you? That doesn't make sense. He says, I say this to your shame. This is disgraceful. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Really? You can't figure this out yourselves? You really think that, that an unbeliever who, who doesn't have a, a, a spiritual lens that they're looking through, an unbeliever who, who is part of the world, who rejects Jesus Christ, you really think that's the best place? That you really think that person is the best choice to, to render a decision? And in the corrupt courts, you're going to air all your dirty laundry. In the public court, you're going to, going to submit yourself to a corrupt system. You're going to sit under a judge who's on the take. That's your plan, Paul says. Why would you do that? And even as we, as we read this, as we hear, we hear this, we might be thinking, yeah, why would they? That doesn't make sense for believers. If it's really that bad, the answer is they're acting worldly. Remember, this is the number one issue in the book of Corinthians, is worldliness. He spent 25% of it. This is one of those spokes on the wagon wheel. This is one of the, the, the outcomes of worldliness. They were greedy. Taking someone to court was a way of getting something that you wanted. It was a chance to flex your community influence muscle. And the wealthy and, and the, those that had high social standing had a huge advantage over the weak and over the poor and over those, those that weren't as well connected. So winning in court 
was a way of displaying to everyone that, that you were on top. This was a way of coming out and saying, see, I can get whatever I want, whenever I want. It was a way to, to show that you were top dog in the community. It was worldliness. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So the fact that you can't get along and you're, you're taking someone to court, that's shameful. Now this might be a good time to talk about, Paul's, Paul's not referring to criminal behavior here. He's, he's not talking about things that, like murder or you know, violent crimes or, or anything like that. That's, that's not what's going on. We are uh, certainly um, allowed to, to pursue legal matters and, and things like that. Um, murder, violence, kidnapping, any other high crime. This seems to be small claims court. Look at verse 2. Trivial cases. Verse 5. Dispute between brothers. If this were something more serious, of course believers have access to the courts. God has given the civil government and the authorities the sword for a reason, and they are to execute justice. They are supposed to punish evil, so there's nothing wrong with that. He's talking about trivial cases. Small potatoes. A business deal gone bad. Small disagreement over wages. Damages from a neighbor's animal in those days. Very common. Those types of things. He offers this. Why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? Because nobody wins if you take your brother to court. First of all, think about that. It's going to cause division in the church. If someone take somebody who's, who's sitting in the pew next to them to court, and, and this kind of system where, where they try to fleece them for all they can get, um, you're not going to have the same relationship with that person in church or, or outside of church that you had beforehand. In fact, you probably won't be friends after something like that. That's going to cause division. And here in this church, this first century Corinth, where they were already prone to be taking sides and acting worldly, don't you think person A and, and the friends, the people that were more friends with them would kind of rally around them and, and person B had their group of friends and they would kind of rally around them and all of a sudden now in the church you've got this heightened division. And of course the world is going to see it. These were in open air buildings and the public would come and say, oh, <laughs> There's those two people that call themselves Christians. They're acting just like everybody else. They're, they're going after their own with everything they've got. Paul's saying, better to walk away uh, so your neighbor's goat damaged your fence and ate some of your crops. Okay. Better to suffer loss than to make it public and a big deal. Verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Taking a brother to court, in this context with such a corrupt, broken system, taking a brother to court, in this context, would be sinful for, the, for these small claims, for, for trying to get um, more than they, they really needed or expected or, or deserved. So think about it. If, if you're taking someone to court, if you're initiating the process, then you think you're going to win. Who goes to court thinking they're going to lose? Who, who, who files a lawsuit with the hope that they, they lost or that they lose or the, the, the understanding that they're probably going to lose? Nobody. 
So, so the one taking them to court in this context would have been the stronger one, the one that, that had the, the funds to make payouts, the one who had the connections, the one who was playing golf with the judges on the weekend. Okay, that was the stronger brother. So they're taking the weaker brother to court. They could play the game and, and pull the right levers to, to make out whatever outcome they wanted. Paul says that is sinful engaging in that process that the world does and that the world says is perfectly legal and okay, that's sinful for you because it's essentially legalized theft. You're not to do that. I know it's legal, but it's sinful and I don't want you to do it. And then now we see how verse 9 fits. Now we see how these, these two passages connect. So he's going to make a connection and give them a reminder. Verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Unrighteous can also be translated as wrongdoers. In fact, if you have an ESV, there's a footnote alerting the reader that alternate, alternate translation. Look back at verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Do you see the connection he's making here? He's saying engaging in that process of taking a brother to court and fleecing them and getting everything you can out of them, that's wrongdoing. And what I'm telling you and reminding you is that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he pushes those two together. If you're doing this, if this is your practice, if you're walking in this, that's ongoing unrepentant sin and you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's saying this this may not seem like a big deal to you. It's, it's not a, a dirty, steamy sexual sin. It's, it's not that you're actually breaking into someone's house and stealing their belongings. It, it may not seem like it's a big deal to you because it's perfectly legal in the world's eyes and perfectly acceptable and even encouraged, but it is still sin and you can't walk in that and expect to inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And then we have what's called a vice list in the New Testament. A list of sins. And among those sins it are, it includes swindlers, thieves, and greedy. If, if we had to walk through this, let's take a look, make sure we understand what he's talking about. Sexually immoral, all forms of sexual immorality, that includes all sexual behavior outside of one man, one woman in marriage. So anything else. Idolaters, worshiping any other God besides the one true God. And this means more than simply bowing down to a golden snake somewhere. This means mixing faiths, that means... Um, syncretism, which was, was the mixing and, and the diluting of one faith with the, with the importation of elements of another. So it's, it's not going to work to say, I'm a professing Christian, but also uh, worship in the pagan, pagan uh, temples that were in Corinth. So that's not going to work. Idolatry also means 
your, your heart, whatever your heart affections are attached to, whatever has taken that first place position in your heart, it should be the Lord Jesus Christ, but it, if it's something else, that's also idolatry. Remember we used the, the diagnostic, if I don't have this, fill in the blank, then life really isn't that exciting to me, or, or life really isn't worth living. Or if, if this is denied me or kept from me, I, I get a little angry and a little agitated. Anything that goes in that blank, Jesus should go in that blank, but if it's anything else, that's an idol. It could be work. It could be money. It could be pleasure. It could be family. It could be something that's good, but has been taken to an extreme degree and has become an idol. So idolatry, adulterers, that's a married person engaging in sexual behavior with someone who's not their spouse, or a single person engaging in sexual behavior with someone else's spouse. Many practice homosexuality, that's someone who engages in homosexual behavior of any kind, in any context. Thieves, taking something or keeping something that doesn't belong to you. Greedy, also translated as coveters, that's desiring something that does not belong to you, or desiring something to excess. Drunkards, drinking to excess. Revilers, that's verbal uh, attacks towards people. Uh, attacking someone's character, verbal insults, abusive insults. Swindlers, taking by unjust means, using deception or force to seize suddenly. Paul's saying, do not be deceived. Anyone who walks in, in any of these sins, including the practice of legalized theft by using the courts to defraud someone, is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Just because the world embraces something and declares it legal, or celebrates it, or encourages it, don't think that God is okay with it. And then verse 11, God's grace. And such were some of you. This is where God's grace and the transforming power of the gospel shines so powerfully. It's, we, we may not want to stare directly at it. It's so bright. Some of the raw Christians in Corinth had once walked in these sins. They had once practiced these sins with no, repent, no repentance, no regret, no moral shame or conflict, but now they were in Christ. And because they were in Christ by faith, Paul can say this about them. He says, you were washed, which means cleansed, made clean. The sin they had once walked openly in, and the defiling nature of that sin has been removed. It's been washed away. You were sanctified. God has called them into his church. He's called them to be a holy people who have been set apart from the world to serve God, to live in obedience to Christ. You were justified. Remember, this is a legal status. It's an act of God's free grace by which he pardons our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. And he can only do that because he counts the righteousness of Christ to us justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Salvation is a work of God. It's not something we do. We cannot make ourselves right with God. We cannot earn our way into His favor. 
He justifies us based on the work of Jesus Christ applied to us when we repent and believe in him. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. A higher standard, Paul says. If we summarize this passage, we'd say Paul is telling the new Christians in Corinth not to take other believers to the corrupt Roman courts. The believers are well equipped to resolve trivial cases amongst themselves. Settling differences on their own will prevent division in the church. It will provide a better witness to a watching world. But the primary reason they should refrain from taking each other to court and a corrupt system is because at that time the courts function as a legal means of defrauding someone which is sinful and anyone who practices sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the raw believers should not make the mistake of thinking that if something's permitted and accepted by the world, then God's people are free to engage in it. Because of their new status in Christ, they are called to walk as followers of Christ. That's the message here. Yes, of course, we are to settle disputes among ourselves, but, but Paul is trying to put these, connect these dots and shove these two truths together and showing them the connection and saying, even if the world says it's okay, you're called to a higher standard. We're going to draw two application points. One is, is working things out among brothers and sisters. Working things out among brothers and sisters. Praise God, our courts are not as corrupt as the first century Corinthian courts. For example, in the United States, I would not suggest bribing a judge or trying to intimidate a witness. It will not turn out well. Um, we read about these things in books and movies, but in reality, that's not a good idea. But even though our courts aren't as corrupt as, as Corinth at that time, we still want to apply this passage in a way that, that makes sense and is meaningful. So, once again, this is not talking about criminal behavior. If, if that happens, call the police. Please don't let anybody leave and say, well, Pastor Kurtz said Christians aren't to engage in the, in the court system or any, any pursue justice by any means of the courts. Nope, that's not what I'm saying. If it's criminal, call the police and, and uh, follow the, the regular path. We're talking about trivial matters. Uh, one New Testament scholar wrote to the first, that the first century Corinthians were, were taking people to court, quote, for the most trivial reasons. Uh, again, quote, for just about anything. And, and the idea is that someone in this context would, would find something to take their brother to court over, but then once they have them there, they, they let them have it, and they, they take them for all they can get. So find something small to open the door, and then once they're there, use your power to, to fleece them and, and, and take everything you wanted to. So today in 2022, I'm not even sure if some of the things that they use to take people to court, I don't even know if a judge would entertain some of those things. It seems like small personal grievances over things with very little monetary value. One, again, look at the language. Verse one, grievances. Two, trivial cases. Verse five, dispute between the brothers. So personal arguments. So as believers, we're, we're to apply this passage by working out our differences and our grievances and these trivial things to the best of our ability amongst ourselves. 
That makes sense. If we have an issue with someone, and it continues to be an issue, go to that person. This is still the best place to start. If you've got a a grievance or or a trivial case with someone, go directly to that person and start there. Uh, There was a church that had a a deacon board one time, not this church. There there was a church with a deacon board, and, and during the discussion of the business, one deacon made a comment about another deacon's work ethic or lack of work ethic or so it seemed. And, and the other deacon who the insult was made against didn't, didn't really know how to respond and, and so in the moment they didn't, they didn't have a comeback or a response but they went home and over the next several days it really just started to bother them more and more and, and finally they, they couldn't stand it any longer so one day in church they walked up and confronted them and they said, what did you mean by this comment? And it turns out, after hearing the other person talk, it had nothing to do with his work ethic. It was something totally unrelated. Unrelated. He misunderstood him. That's always the best place to start. Now, in that example, even if he had made a comment, an insult about his work ethic, that still would have been the best place to start. Going directly to the person, trying to work it out amongst yourselves. As brothers and sisters, if we approach one another in grace, um, uh, with the idea that we want to work things out, that this, this is my brother and sister in Christ, who after we get through this and resolve it, we're going to move on and, and live together and, and do church together, it's always a good idea to start and go directly to them. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There is a reason that this proverb is quoted often. It's because it's true, and it's because when properly applied, it can diffuse many situations and disagreements between brothers and sisters. So work things out. Don't sweat the small stuff. There was a small group that had several other couples over for uh, a time of fellowship and Bible study, and then after it was over, everybody was leaving out the front door, and and, and one of the couples had brought their young children, and on the way out of the door, they, they passed through the, uh, the landscaped area and trampled on some flowers and, and took one of the path lights and threw it in the driveway and it cracked, and, and then in a commotion, they piled up in the van and left. So how do we respond to something like that? Why not rather suffer wrong, Paul says. Why not suffer wrong? So we have to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is it worth the $42 in damage for replacing the plants and the, and the solar light? Or is it better to model grace and forgiveness? And if you have children, what, and they're watching you closely, if you have children and what does that say to them if as soon as the guests leave and the door closes, mom and dad begin complaining about it and, and end with something like, well, they're paying for it. What, what does that model to our children? Why not just let it go? Don't sweat the small stuff. We're talking about grievances, trivial cases, disputes between brothers. So Paul says, stay out of the courts, work it out amongst yourselves. The second application is a warning about the spiritual danger 
of continuing an ongoing unrepentant sin, any ongoing unrepentant sin is enough to keep someone from inheriting the kingdom of God. And that's, that's Paul's main point here. Even if the world says it's okay, even if it's legalized, even if there's no penalty for whatsoever in the world by engaging in that sin, Paul says, no, as long as God calls something sin, we are not to engage in it. And if you walk in that, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Not because this sin was any worse than any of the others. Not, not because the, the Corinthian believers, by engaging in this lawful defrauding through the court system, that's, it's not worse than any of those, those others on the vice list. It's the fact that you're walking in it, you're practicing You've accepted it as, as something that's okay for you to do. You're not repenting from it. So this warning is a strong warning, and it still applies today. I want to be sensitive for those that are struggling in sin, so I want to clarify what we're talking about. Walking in sin is inconsistent with walking in Christ, but I'm not talking about those who are struggling with sin. This is not a warning to those who are sinning and repenting. This is a warning to those who are sinning and repeating without repenting. So this is not a warning for someone who hates their sin. This is a warning for someone who loves their sin. This is not a warning for someone who tearfully cries out to God and begs them to remove this sin from their life. This is a warning for someone who continues in this sin and, and is not asking God for any help with it, and who's made it a part of their life. So it's not those who are fighting against sin, it's those who are living and dwelling in sin. And he's saying, because of what Christ has done for us, because we are in Christ, you're called to a higher standard. You, you can't participate in it just because the world gives it the okay. There was a... a Three, three men who were going out and uh, one of them was a firearms instructor and they were going out to do some shooting so they went out to a quarry where everything was safe and there was a, a firing line and then there was another table further back and the instructor had brought his son and he told his son to stay, stay back and so while he was instructing one of the men the, the other man was back with his son and every once in a while he would, he would turn around and just check on how things were going and one time he turned around and and he saw his son handling the, the pistol of the other man. Now the son had asked if he could take a look at it. The other man cleared it, checked it, made sure it was safe. He double-checked it, and then he, then he handed it over. But when the instructor turned around, he said, put it down. And, and the son thought he had, was thinking that he didn't ask permission. He said, but I asked Mr. So-and-so. He said it was okay. And his dad said, I don't care. Put it down. And his son realized, oh, okay. He told me to put it down, not because I didn't ask permission, but because he wants to be around me anytime I'm handling this. And he, he asked me to put it down because he loves me and he wants me to live. When our Heavenly Father tells us something's off limits, when he says, put it down, he does so even if the world says it was okay. Even if the world says, you have my permission to handle that. God says, put it down. God says, I don't care. Because I love you. 
and I want to see you live. So even if you have permission, you're not to handle it. That's, that's the message in verse 9 through 11. Abortion is legal. Same-sex marriage is legal. Porn is legal. Drunkenness is legal. Adultery is still legal in some states. Greed is legal. Coveting is legal. And we could go on and on. There are a lot of things in this world that are legal and, and perfectly okay in the world's eyes. But God loves us. And he said, I don't care. Put it down. You're called to a higher standard. My people are to live by the book. If you want to inherit the kingdom of God, you're going to live by a higher standard. And you cannot walk in ongoing unrepentant sin. Even if the world gets your permission. Paul says, do not be deceived. That could be translated as do not err. Or do not make this mistake. Do not make the mistake of thinking if you're walking in any sin that you're still going to inherit eternal life. Is anyone here today walking in sin? And maybe it's something that's acceptable in the world. Maybe it's, maybe it's something that, that no longer has any negative social stigma attached to it. Something that if you told your co-workers, they would, they would listen to you and say, so? Everybody does that. Maybe it, it's something like that. Whether the world approves of it or not, is there something in your life that you've, you've stopped fighting against? Is, is there something that you've, you've just decided it's, it's easier to go with the flow than, than keep mounting a battle? Is there something that, that you're falling in over and over and you've decided, well, I guess I'm just going to make peace with it. I guess this is just who I am. Is there something that's been knocking on your door so often that you finally say, okay, come on in, have a seat. Make yourself at home. If so, repent. If so, then this warning is for you. Even if it's legal. Even if the world has given you permission. Do not be deceived. Do not make the mistake of thinking that you could walk in something and still inherit the kingdom of God. Confess your sin. Repent from it. Turn back. Take, take no going back types of steps to deal with this sin and eliminate it from your life. I would also ask, is there anyone here today walking in unbelief? Because unbelief is perfectly legal in America. If you told your co-worker or, or your friend down the street that you don't believe in God or the Bible, they'd probably say, okay, neither do I. Great. Welcome to the club. I'm glad to see you're a free thinker. In fact, it's almost welcomed. In some places, unbelief is almost required to advance in, in the culture or even the workplace. So if, if there's anyone here that's been walking in unbelief, um, that, that's perfectly acceptable in the world. You're not going to raise any eyebrows if you continue to walk in unbelief. But the one who persists in it will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not make the mistake of thinking that you can continue to walk 
and unbelief. John 3.18 says, Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. But there is good news. There is good news for the person who has up to this point walked in unbelief. Let's look one more time into the Son in verse 11. And such were some of you. All of those sins listed in that vice list have been forgiven. The believers in Corinth used to walk in them. They used to practice them. But they've been forgiven. They have a new status in Christ. This is, uh, if we had one takeaway besides the warning, it would be the, the good news uh, for those who, who heed the warning. If you've ever had a, a teacher that, uh, I had an old school teacher that used to, when they got really excited and, and they wanted to underline something important, they'd take the chalk and they'd hit it three or four times. They'd often break the chalk because it was so important. This is one of those break the chalk moments. Such were some of you. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So here's the good news for repentant sinners who believe in Jesus Christ. For those that keep falling and, and keep getting back up. For those that are entangled in sin but have, have not stopped fighting. For those that have uh, repented and, and keep repenting in Christ. There is good news. Lift your head up. Be ashamed no more. If you are repenting and believing in Jesus Christ and your sin is forgiven and God calls you afresh to follow him. It's not too late. You're not too far gone. You cannot out-sin God's grace. That's good news for us. For unbelievers, this is good news. No matter how long you have walked in unbelief, God will forgive you if you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you this morning, that if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, God offers you forgiveness. Everything will be wiped clean. Your sin will be forgiven. Even if you have walked in or practiced any of these sins, or even if you're walking in them right now, God's offer of forgiveness is for you. There is good news. The basis upon which people spend an eternity in heaven or hell is not whether they've been a good enough person in this life. Because no one's been good enough. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus in Mark 10.18 said, no one is good except God alone. This is a game changer. If you've, if you've ever thought of, of getting into heaven in terms of your own meritorious works or in terms of, of being a good person, no, that's not it. When it comes to salvation, God holds people to a higher standard. In fact, he holds them to a, a per standard of perfection, complete moral sinlessness. That's the threshold for getting into heaven. And then we ask, of course, well, well, then who could make it? No one. No one. That's why it has to be by grace. It has to be through faith in Jesus Christ. No one is able to meet the high standard of perfection except Jesus Christ. So the basis upon which people are spending an eternity in heaven or hell is not good works, but on whether or not our sin is forgiven. That's the basis. We all have it. 
There is no perfect person, only a perfect God. So it's not about being good enough, it's having our sin forgiven. And the only, one that, the only way anyone can have their sins forgiven is through repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. When we repent of our sin, Jesus applies the work of Jesus to us. Jesus is death, Jesus is life. God says, turn to me, believe in my son. When we do that, God applies Jesus' death, that payment of, of, of the, the penalty of our sin is, has been paid for on the cross. When we put our trust and faith in Jesus, God applies that payment to us so that we no longer are responsible for paying for our own sin. Praise God. When we trust in Jesus, his life is also applied to us. His, his perfect, sinless perfection, that high standard that God demands, that also is applied to us. So our sin is paid for, and, and the perfection is, uh, the moral perfection is, is credited to us. That's why it's good news. It's good news because sinners are forgiven. It's good news because sinners like you and me will go to heaven. We'll spend an eternity with God. We are saved from spending an eternity from he in hell. That's good news. If you're a believer and you've been walking in some sin, if the world has given you its permission to engage in some sin without any legal or social penalty, so you've given yourself over to it, and, and you've just blown every stop sign that, that God has put up as a warning, it's not too late. Repent. Repent. If you are an unbeliever, and have never considered the state of your soul and your standing before God in, in these terms, if you've always thought about it in terms of being good enough, and you've just assumed that God will bring you into heaven because of your good deeds, if that's where you once were, but now through the Spirit of God and, and the reading and proclamation of His Word, He has convicted you of your sin and opened your eyes so that you see and understand your need for a Savior, Repent and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Today, the kingdom of God is open. Today, the offer of forgiveness is open. But once the master rises and shuts the door, it will be too late. Don't wait. Do not be deceived. Anyone who continues to walk in ongoing unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. No one will inherit the kingdom of God unless they've been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ that sinners are welcomed into the kingdom of God when we turn to Jesus in faith and believe. Father, we thank you for the death of Jesus Christ applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that the life of Jesus Christ has been applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit that benefits are ours, not because of anything we've done, but because of your grace. And Father, we thank you for the free offer of forgiveness that is open and that is extended now 
to all who repent and believe. In Jesus' name, amen.